It was the year Zabisco hit rock bottom, the year Ed Lewis wore out his welcome, and the year that wrestling became red hot in Los Angeles. Welcome to the story of 1924. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Here we are, there you are, here we are. There you are? Where are we? Did we meet here? Are you here with us? Are we there with you? Did we meet together and go to a second location? Because you should never follow anyone to a second location, especially a stranger. What am I talking about? Who are we? My name's Nick Gossard. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a booker, but more importantly for right now, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And as always, I am here with the Spider-Man 1 Bruce Campbell to my Spider-Man 2 Bruce Campbell. It's Chongo Bronson. How the heck are you? I'm out here getting these greens, green young boys over, brother. What's your name, kid? Mr. Spider-Person? Yeah, that doesn't work for me. Chongo will make you a star. Hello, nerds. Welcome to the Hippodrome Express. And that little description actually made more sense than you'd realize because you're a loudmouth and I gatekeep like a motherfucker. So it all works out. Well, what are we doing today? Uh, this show is about pro wrestling history. It's about the men, the women, the crazy adventures, the crazy tall tales, uh, kind of refined into one compact uh, little little story, if you will. And you may listen to this, and if you if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm, I'm glad you're checking out our show. But if you don't know names like Ed Strangler Lewis or Joe Stetcher, or Stanislaw Zabisco, you might want to back out and start a little bit earlier in the series. You know, go back to the Stanislaw Zabisco episode, or at least Ed Lewis Part 1, so you know what the heck we're talking about, so you can appreciate it even more. Otherwise, I guess just dive on in, figure it out as we're going along, and some of you may also be fellow history nerds who go, wait a minute, according to this shoot interview by this guy he heard the story this way or according to this author it happened because of this and you know what sometimes we're right i like to think most of the time we're right but occasionally we interpret things a different way we're taking the source material and doing the best we can to create coherent storytelling yeah and if you think we're wrong you know keep in mind man this is like from the era of the wanted poster on the wall all wild wild west and one thing Chongo knows from old westerns is you never believe what it says about an outlaw on a wanted poster. And another bit uh, to bring up is, you know, we've, we've occasionally kicked around the idea of doing a Patreon. Maybe we will at some point. But right now, I struggle to get a episode researched, written, recorded, and edited in a two-week window. So the possibility of me doing more than that is almost 0% possible. So there is a Venmo in the description. If you feel like throwing us a dollar, if you go, hey guys, that episode was awesome. Here is one dollar. Venmo it to me. I appreciate it. It'll go towards books and posting these darn things on the interwebs. So thank you to Lydia, Mike, and Carl who sent us a few bucks. We appreciate it and we love you. And they're the only ones that aren't going to get pocket-checked at their locker and held upside down and shaken until all the, all the uh, I don't know, what do they even call that these days? I guess you can't just jack somebody for crypto money, right? You nerds are lucky! Yeah, I assume at this point you shake them upside down until the, uh, the Pokemon fall out of their pockets. I don't know what kids are into these days. I am old and out of touch. 
So let's get back to the story that we've been telling over these last several episodes. When we left off last time, Joe Stetcher was making a hot comeback. He was calling out Ed Lewis. He was trying to get that belt back. But unfortunately, the company, the trust from a few years previously had split apart. The Stetcher brothers went with Curly. The title went with Sandow. Stetcher was back. And he knew the only way to really kind of kind of get into that ring, get into that title picture, if he wasn't on the inside, it was to mouth off until the public demanded it. But Ed Lewis used policemen, which a lot of people find strange because Ed Lewis was a legitimate tough guy. He was a shooter. He was a hooker. But he was still using policemen to keep those people off of him, and for a very good reason. When it comes to legitimate competition, anybody can win at a certain level. You know, if you say, I can beat this guy nine out of 10 times, well, you don't want that one time to happen in Omaha in front of 10,000 people. Yeah, and you know, this is a practice that is alive and well today in a lot of other aspects. For example, gate the gatekeeper at a MMA or a jiu-jitsu school, like if you walk in there and you're, you're pretty proficient and well-trained, you don't get to just step in and spar with Rampage or whoever. You have to go with like the crew that, First of all, they're they're checking if you're willing to work. And in this context, they're checking and willing to work if you're willing to play ball and do a job. If you're going to work with the champ, if you're going to work with Strangler, you have to be willing to... You have to earn the trust of the trust. Exactly, because you would get in the ring with a guy like Pesic or like Mont, and if you were a problem at all in the ring, their job was to dislocate your elbow. Their job was to rough you up so bad that nobody would ever take you seriously as a wrestler again. You had to play ball again and again and again until it made sense to even remotely give you something close to a title shot. But a guy like Stetcher, who's on the outside, he doesn't want to deal with that. He has to come up with his own plan. So Stetcher would repeatedly state that he put down a $15,000 guarantee Whew. against Ed Lewis, which is a huge amount of money in those days. And hell, it's still a huge amount of money today. Yeah, how many, like, oxen does that buy you on Oregon Trail? <laughs> More than a few, I think. Yeah, maybe like two of those wagons. Enough to, enough to save your middle child from dysentery, man. Oh, nothing can save your middle child from dysentery on the Oregon Trail. Well, it's still a lot of money. Wrapping up the year 1923, on December 15th, Ed the Strangler Lewis versus Taro Miyaki for the World Jiu-Jitsu Championship in Wichita. What? According to the Lola Daily Register, the match was 20-minute rounds with, quote, the tricky art of jiu-jitsu and the scientific holds of catches catch can wrestling here exhibited, end quote. Lewis won in the fourth round with a series of headlocks to a pin over his smaller opponent. He was declared the jiu-jitsu champion of the world, which was never mentioned again, ever. Uh, first, take my money. Second, can you guys hear the sound of my jaw dropped? And third, so many questions. Like, does he get a black belt? Did he like, does he like, I'm the sensei now. And why have we not heard about this? This Be is, this is incredible, man. Because Miyaki was, you know, he was an important figure in, in uh, pro wrestling at this period. He was, again, one of those, judo black belts that came out into the world into mm. europe into the states into central south america much like maeda was where it's like hey i'm here to teach judo wait a minute i can be uh, i can make money being a pro wrestler heck yeah 
So he was kind of paraded around as the Japanese jiu-jitsu judo expert, primarily to put over the American wrestlers in front of a, we'll just say it, a racist crowd. So by being a minority, you made a great heel just by default. And also his style was so different that it did make the matches a little more exciting because he just had a little different seasoning on them. Yeah, I like how his title is on the line, and then Strangler took it, and he's like, there is no more Jiu-Jitsu World Champion. December 28th, Ed Lewis wins a match against Dick Daviscourt in Wichita, and is arrested after the match for assault and battery against a fan named William Goodman. Lewis gave up the first fall via the headlock, and the crowd went wild. Goodman shouted in Lewis's face while the champ was heading back to the dressing room, so Lewis did the only reasonable thing and punched him in the goddamn face. The charges were dropped when Goodman at the police station claimed to be the wrong guy and that Lewis never touched him. Well, Goodman's a good man. And, you know, he probably totally didn't see that coming. He's like, he won't strangle me. Bow! Oh, beautiful. That's heat, brother. Yeah, there's nothing. Uh, nothing gets the, the blood flowing like a fan getting socked in the mouth for mouthing off. That's... That's a true story in pro wrestling as long as the sport has existed. And I love that at the end of the road, he did he did do the, I don't know what you're talking about, officer. Probably with his like jaw like fucking hanging off bruised and his nose bleeding with paper towels up his uh, nostrils. Oh, or else, uh, I don't know if he did it out of the goodness of his heart or like around the corner, Billy Sandow's like staring at him, making the throat slit motion with his fingers. Who knows? But either way, Ed Lewis escaped uh, justice that day. Oh, no, justice was served. In fact, it kind of reminds me of someone I know. Uh, a couple couple of times I've seen unruly fans catch the old two-piece in a biscuit at Lucha Libre in the ass, but I don't know. Maybe that's, you know, that's a, uh, there's no evidence of that. Allegedly, I mean, hypothetically, yeah, um, yes. Allegedly, the yes. promoter had to de- has had to deal with some rowdy fans every now and then, but that's all allegations. Because they didn't press charges. Ba- all pure ballyhoo, I say. Yes, ballyhoo was that? Doesn't matter. And here's one you are going to love, and I love, and hopefully the audience does. December 31st, 1923. Sports headline. William Muldoon ends story two-year reign. It appeared in sports pages across the nation, including the Bluefield Daily Telegraph. And if you assume that Muldoon got fired over his suppression of the wrestling game, think again. Behind the scenes, Muldoon who did not approve of mixed-race matches, had refused to green-light a boxing match between Jack Dempsey and Harry Wills. I'm sure that this was the straw that broke the camel's back after years of bullshit, but oof, racism, what a very 1923 reason to get fired from your job. Yeah, you know, that's what happens when the commish, like, literally was in the Civil War as a kid, you know? You know, I guess you, you either die, like... Kurt Angle, or you live long enough to see yourself become like crotchety cornet? Yeah, because this was a time when, yeah, the every, they, everybody was still very racist. Like, this was a, still a very racist time, but I think there is a gray area for most people in the business and the boxing industry where racism fades when money can be made, and when Muldoon put his boot down saying, no, 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 we're still not letting him box Dempsey, despite all this money on the line, that's when he had to go. Yeah, man, you cannot claim that you're trying to do what's best for business 
and then just say some racist ass shit when the push goes to shove. Well, they've got him out of there, so now New York territory is open for the Hippodrome business, darling. Muldoon was replaced by William J. McCormick, and the Burlington Gazette on New Year's Day quoted Muldoon as, Goodbye, I'm not coming back. In the article, Muldoon's reign as sports boss in New York is over. Ha ha, na 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 na, hey hey hey, goodbye. Meanwhile in the Midwest, Tootsmont was claiming that he, not Joe Stetcher, should receive a title shot, and then he would take on the former champ to prove it, and he didn't need to prove it against Stetcher when everything is controlled by the Gold Dust Trio, so merely talking was enough ballyhoo for him to get another match with Lewis. Lewis beat him in two straight falls during their match in Kansas City on January 10th, the first in one hour 44 minutes, the second in 28 minutes, both via toehold, so it is nice seeing him expanding his toolbox beyond the headlock to make sure that he stays a fresh, exciting attraction, or as much as he could at this point. You know, it's funny because obviously this was a work, right? But at the end of the day, the outcome had the similar probability to if this was a shoot. Because usually, if you talk yourself into a fight that's sort of above your pay grade, that's the outcome. You're going to get ran over. Steve Yohei, in his book, Ed Strangler Lewis, Facts Within a Myth, suggests that this match went the way it went to make Ed look untouchable even to Mont. With Mont looking to shoot on Stetcher in the near future, it made sense to give him a level up against Stetcher because he probably would have beaten him because Mont is a much bigger, much younger, equally skilled athlete. And if Ed Lewis kills Mont in the, in the big matches, and then if it turns into a shooting match with Mont and Stetcher, and Mont beat Stetcher, well, now there's no reason to even discuss a Stetcher-Lewis match whatsoever. And that's exactly why the use of the policeman can be so effective. Because you're basically in a situation where you don't play ball, you're probably going to lose to a guy that we just had get smoked by the champ, so you don't deserve a shot. Or if you do play ball, you're going to lose to a guy that got just smoked by the champ, so you don't deserve a shot, and now we control your ability to earn that back on our terms if you show that you're willing to earn the trust of the trust. The Montana Helena Independent covered it the next day with Rough Stuff Marks Great Bout on Matt. The match was characterized by roughness on the part of both men. Lewis was thrown from the ring once by Mont, and later the two fell through the ropes to the floor and were using their fists when the referee interfered. So in other words, Two good friends were having a blast because there's nobody you're more comfortable beating the shit out of than your best friend. That's right, man. The closer the closer the true bond, the harder the potato, old chap. So if you go to a boxing, a kickboxing, or an MMA gym, and you watch a sparring class, you'll know who is very good friends because they're not sparring, they're fighting. Like they're just I, I remember being a you know back in those days, like me and some guys who are very high level. We would just fucking go for it because we're young, stupid, and we're good friends, so why the hell not? Yeah, and you see the same thing in modern pro wrestling, too, where it's like when you're in there with your buddies that you know there's not going to be hard feelings and you guys truly know each other's comfort level, like, I have damn near taken off my tag team partner Bossy's head with a clothesline. And it was, you know, it's just out of love, man. 
January 18th, 1924 in Wichita, Kansas. Toots Mont vs. Joe Stetcher in a handicap match. Stetcher agreed to pin Mont twice in 90 minutes, but couldn't manage even one. Mont was declared the winner under those rules. The Kansas City promoter signed a rematch as a proper to-a-finish match on February 11th. Clearly a work, but why? And I think this was one of those attempts to see how well Stetcher was willing to do business. He was willing to get in the ring with Mont. Mont was going to get in the ring with him. And they were going to see if they could conduct themselves as proper gentlemen or if any shenanigans were going to be pulled and it turns into a shoot match. So I feel like the handicap thing was a way to keep both guys looking strong, feel out the business side of things, and take it from there. And also like give him a really, really, I wouldn't say unwinnable situation, but anybody can pull off one fall. But if you decide to work it into a shoot, we have two falls to make sure that we still stay strong. And now we know that you're not, you don't have the trust. January 22nd, 1924. Joe Stetcher versus Stanislaw Zabisco in St. Louis. Stetcher had offered a $10,000 guarantee to get the match put together, and Stanislaus was happy to take it. The gate was high enough that Zabisco even got an additional $3,400 on the back Ooh. end. Zabisco won the first fall in just under 23 minutes. Stetcher rallied and took the next two in 13 minutes 40 seconds and 35 minutes 15 seconds both with scissor holds. Apparently, $13,400 is enough for Zabisco to do a job to a trust buster. You know what? Uh, I'd do that job too, brother, because he didn't just, he might have lost two out of three falls, but he won uh, two out of three bank deposits. Oh, hell yeah, he did. The Waterloo Evening Courier published the day before, Zabisco Stetcher, up to old tricks in wrestling. Collier's Eye says Champion Joe is due to flop for the ancient pole, so they clearly were knew it was a work. They knew it was bullshit, but they got the finish wrong trying to predict it. Champion Joe versus ancient pole. Two out of three, which one will roll? I don't know. <laughs> I like it. But yeah, this, is, this reminds me of the 1997 Canadian indie show where Hulk Hogan gladly took $30,000 to put over Jacques Rougeau in Montreal in a non-televised event. Because, yeah, it's like there, there is no such thing as a person so honest that it, it's, a, you know, it's like the joke goes. It's like, we know what you are. Now we're just negotiating. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? That is probably the most fabulous thing I've ever heard of Rougeau do. <laughs> Way to finally live up to your name, Canadian. The Lincoln Star headline the next day, Scissors Joe on Strangler's Trail. Stetcher dumps Zabisco and sets up pins for Whirl at Champion Lewis. Lewis said he'd wrestle Stetcher for a $30,000 guarantee, <sighs> and this was too much to even consider, so it didn't happen. Yeah, Doc, we started the Civil War for less in tea than that, bruh. This was just, he's like, well, it's, what is this, Dr. Evil? Confinity a million gajillion Google dollars. January 23rd, the National Boxing Association met in Louisville, Kentucky to strategize about two issues. One, lobbying to repeal a federal statute which prohibited interstate transportation of motion picture films of prize fights. At the time, several states had, had laws on the books making boxing illegal. 
So it was technically illegal. So if you had a film of a boxing match and you cross state lines with that in tow, you were technically committing a crime, which is weird as hell. So they were lobbying to get that undone. But also, they were discussing making William Muldoon the, quote, dictator of boxing, which didn't get the required votes. Muldoon at the time was being courted by several states to take over their boxing and wrestling commissions. Because as much as Muldoon was a pain in the ass and bad for wrestling, he did clean up boxing in New York to an infuriating degree. He decided to be the most honest man in a crooked world, which for carnies like the wrestlers and for men like us, that is an infuriating blockage to deal with. But so many states needed a guy like that to legitimize boxing. So they were literally trying to put him in charge of boxing across the nation, hoping to break the stranglehold that Tex Rickard had in New York. When I grow up, I want to be the dictator of boxing. Who has that job and how do I take them out and take their place? The New Britain Herald on January 23rd covered the meeting with Boom for Muldoon as boxing czar fails. Charges made that Click controls fight game in America. Rickard and Ringling said to be supreme, preventing championship battles from leaving New York, which is exactly what they were doing. They were making sure that any title matches because they were paying guys like Dempsey as much money as humanly possible, making million-dollar gates, and that made darn sure that if there was going to be a big-money match, it would happen at Madison Square Garden or in New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, it just shows nothing is nothing is new under the sun, because that headline could have been about, you know, the Attitude Era. The click controlling who gets a title shot at Madison Square Garden. You know, I didn't realize Shawn Michaels was that old. And now some news that you are not going to like. January 31st, William Muldoon reinstated to Athletic Commission in New York. Swerve! New lease of life for boxing, wrote the Kingston Daily Freeman. The Lincoln Star published Muldoon again czar of boxing. Iron Duke reappointed by governor as chairman of commission. This was seen as a good thing by the state and city government, who saw Muldoon as apolitical, unbribable, and steadfast against corruption. Yes, he was an asshole who nearly killed wrestling in New York, but the falling rolling falls rule aside, it was him trying to make it as much a clean show as possible, banning known gamblers and bookies from both boxing and wrestling events. Well, you know, that is, uh, that is an admirable aim to some degree because he is trying to protect the sanctity of the purity of the actual sport of professional wrestling competition. But that's not what the people want to see, man. And furthermore, like, being the czar of boxing is definitely a lower title than being the dictator of all boxing in the country. So you still got, you know, second banana there. And, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I admire it philosophically. Yeah. Because there was a purity to it. But as a dirtbag, I would have hated it. Yeah, I mean, it's what you want out of a legitimate sport commissioner, right? You want to know that if you, that if it is, uh, you know, whether it's the NBA or UFC, you want that to be on the up and up and be legit. So I understand that. But we're talking about pro wrestling, man. And this also cemented Tex Rickard as the top promoter in the game. Many in the state wanted to abolish the Walker Law, which would have killed boxing in New York. 
Rickard pulled an ace out of his sleeve by getting the National Boxing Convention to New York City, taking it away from San Francisco, thus winning the political points needed to keep the show going. Wow. In the Lubbock Morning Avalanche, January 23rd, it was stated that, quote, numerous prize fighters and fight supernaries make their living in this state without resorting to work. Probably will be spared after all in the present session of the legislature. I love the wording of that. It's like, oh yeah, there's a lot of people here who are making their money without having to get a day job, and we need to keep that train a rolling. <laughs> Dude, so they just basically did the spoken part of politics out loud right there. That's oh, 100%. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I give them credit because they definitely, like, you know, that shows New York being New York. They're like, oh, you think you're shutting it down? No, we're doubling down, and we're going to mafia the shit out of this thing. This was a fun one. February 6th, 1924, Merced Sunstar. Sicky kiss much too much for Strangler Lewis who flees. Battling Siki, a Senegalese boxer who refereed the wrestling match, tried to hug and give a French-style kiss to the cheek to Lewis, who fled and jumped out of the ring to avoid it. Just a man not in touch with his feelings. What was that guy's name? Ed Lewis? No, we've yeah, been talk, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. I think I've heard of him before. We've been yeah, yeah, about totally. for a while. Uh, battling Siki. He was a uh, Senegalese boxer who was... Uh, uh, doing a tour of the United States, and they were trying to build up an upcoming fight by having a referee some pro wrestling. And apparently, uh, Ed Lewis is just unsophisticated and didn't want to smooch on the cheek. February 11th, Mott versus Stetcher in Kansas City. The rematch, the to a finish match. It was on. Mott won the first fall. Then punched Stetcher in the second and was disqualified. I did not do it. He got me. I didn't even. Oh, my God. That swerved me and popped me. That's awesome. For those of you who didn't hear us, because I started laughing immediately. In the second fall, Toots Mott punched Stetcher in the face and was disqualified. The Lincoln Star headlined, Grappler hangs KO on Stetcher. Peerless Joe takes the count from stiff punch by Toots Mott. Colorado Cowboy wins first fall but loses verdict on foul tactic. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess that's losing. He's like, I beat you at grappling, and now I just knocked you out too. But dude, that makes me want to book a two out of three falls match. Just to, You have this great grappling match, second fall, they come forward. Boom! That's, that's bloody brilliant. And I've been pondering why this happened. Was it a message sent? Was it a work for drama? If it was a shoot, how insane was Stetcher to keep walking into what would be considered traps, and why would the policeman not wreck his shit for it? So it's one of those matches where I can't tell if it was just Mott being like, oh, now we're comfortable. Boom! There, take that, motherfucker. Or if it was like, we're going to work this match, we're going to do a dirty finish for business down the road, because now Mott looks like the asshole, Stetcher gets some babyface points, and nobody really loses the match. Yeah, I think it, it smells like a sand out of me because if you're going to do a DQ for the second fall, doing it in that way simultaneously can send the message of like, we still, like, we could still clean your clock at any time there, buddy. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways it could be a shoot, a lot of ways it could be a work, but one way or the other, the crowd went apeshit when Stetcher got punched the fuck out in the second. Dude, you know, nothing nothing pops the people more than a properly timed punchline. February 13th, Ed Lewis versus Pat McGill in New York City at the 81st Armory. This show was considered a big deal and a real revival of New York City wrestling. 
3,000 fans showed up to watch the match. Also on the undercard, Big Wayne Munn defeated Bill Beth, Bill Meth, or Big Beth, depending on what paper you looked at. Munn's debut had been hyped for over a month with headlines like the Lincoln Evening State Journal's Big Munn Will Try Luck at Wrestling, or the Iowa City Press Citizen with Yup, Bigger They Are, The Harder, dot dot dot. Promoter Gene Malady had gone all in on developing Munn, a former University of Nebraska football star and veteran of the Great War, sort of, who had tried his hands at boxing with less than stellar results. The aforementioned Iowa City Press Citizen article recounted, quote, Big Munn was matched against his first professional opponent, one Jack Clifford, an awful tomato. The next day came a wire dramatically short, Munn bumped off in two rounds. Oh well, maybe he will do better the next time, we ventured, hopefully. <laughs> uh, okay, first of all, that's the first, like, maybe the start of the origin of the boxing term calling a guy a tomato can, which is basically the boxing version of a jobber. It's been a t- it's been around for quite a while. He called him a ro- yeah, that was beautiful. Yeah, but yeah, I just love that that finds its way into. It's like you're not you're not just talking shit about him. You're making Mum look even worse. Like this guy's a fucking dork. This is this is Glass Joe and Punch Out. Yeah, and he knocked you out, loser. Yeah, welcome to the trust, baby. After covering his second loss, they stated, "quote It takes more than heft to win in the prize ring." Colonel Fitzsimmons was eminently correct. The bigger they come, the harder they flop. So expectations clearly were mixed for the six foot six wrestling rookie. So this was like the first example of just like a body guy getting a push and then totally shit in the bed. Yeah, because he was six foot six. He was an enormous college athlete. And a Nebraska football player, that's like you might as well be a god in that part of the country. Yep, and he tried to, you know, because he'd been kind of bouncing around with jobs. He'd been a a car salesman, an oil worker, he was a preacher, uh, he tried his hands at vaudeville, and then he tried boxing, and you'd think this six foot six guy, I mean, just the reach alone, and he got knocked out twice, a big old whoopsie doodle, so based on his look, they went, that guy could be money in pro wrestling, and according to the Lincoln Evening State Journal, Munn won his first match via headlock in seven minutes and two seconds. He, he kind of reminds me of, like, Bob Sapp. Mm. You know? Like, maybe if Bob Sapp had gotten a push and, like, been produ- presented in that way in America, he could have been he could have been that guy. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, he's he, he one of those guys that, you know, to the untrained eye, to the, the average Joe, you look at him, you're like, oh, man, that guy's enormous. I bet he could beat the hell out of anyone. Clearly, that's not how it works in the fight game. But when you're working the fight game, you can do matches like this where somebody who is good can carry a guy for seven minutes and make them look like a world killer. Yeah, that's it. That's why Mr. Perfect and guys like that, the guys that make the Ultimate Warriors look as good as they can possibly look, even though they're actually not... They're the draw, but they are the shits in the ring. Those guys that make them look good, those are the guys that are worth their weight in gold. It's like the Tom McGee story with Bret yes, Hart. Yes, exactly. There's this amazing story of Bret Hart versus Tom McGee. It was a tryout match, and it was absolutely amazing. So McMahon said, oh, my God, we have to hire this McGee guy. And then they put him in with somebody who wasn't Bret Hart, 
and they saw this guy couldn't wrestle to save his fucking life. He looked cartoonishly bad. You can find some of his other matches on YouTube. It is he's like a karate guy with a gymnastics background, and it is it is hilarious to watch him try to wrestle. So yeah, the, uh, you can have a bad wrestler in the business so long as you have a good wrestler to make him look good. You can always tell who the greats are by who the uh, their contemporaries have their best matches against. February fourteenth, Ed Lewis beats George Katsuneros in Boston. Lewis and Sandow had a good relationship with Boston promoter Paul Bowser, whom you might remember as setting up Nat Pendleton to get mauled by John Pesek in our last episode. The Boston fans were getting upset at how Billy Sandow would coach Lewis, so Sandow was banned from ringside. Oh boy, yeah, you know, you know it's gonna, you know, a manager's got heat when they're banned from the building because they're just like the manager's pissing off the crowd that much. Well, that, you know, that's another Sandow first, and, you know, it just speaks to the greatness and how much heat that uh, Strangler's got in Boston, man. That's tight. Meanwhile, Joe Stetcher kept busy, losing a handicap match on February 14th in Tulsa by not throwing Cliff Binkley twice in two hours. Again, I feel like that was doing a promoter a favor by making a, another wrestler look adequate, almost an equal. Because, again, we've talked about this since our first episode, when you do the handicap multi-pin stipulation, because defense wins championships, it's a situation where nobody really looks bad, the big star is still the big star, and the lower guy survived without getting pinned, which takes him up another notch. And it's like kind of like when you play your little brother in basketball and spot him half the points to the finish. If he wins, he didn't really win. Right? He, you know, it saves the, it saves the, the, the star. Yeah, and that's always going to be a, a recurring theme in pro wrestling where what you give back to the next generation matters a great deal. Ed Lewis was constantly doing that for guys like Londos and Mott, where you don't necessarily need to lose to make them look good. You just don't have to make them lose and look bad. So, yes. situations like this, Stetcher was another guy who would do this constantly. And there are many people in those days, in the earlier days, in the current day, who refuse to do that. And then they are left awfully lonely, lonely because they have eaten up everybody around them and now have nobody who they can beat and make it mean anything. Yeah, you know, and that's the problem when you're truly a visionary and ahead of the curve, is that they don't understand. Sandow has all this worked out to a degree that none of these people have thought of, let alone seen. So, I mean, he I'm sure it was really hard for him to get people on board at first with this revolutionary approach to, to working things primarily for building houses until they started seeing these draws. But I'm not surprised there's a lot of holdovers that don't want to play ball. And around this time... Tootsmont apologized for punching Stetcher and ending such an anticlimactic match like that. The Sandow group announced that a punch would no longer be an automatic DQ early in a match. Put that one in the back of your brain. It's going to pay off a little bit later. And now would result in a rest period until the punched wrestler is ready to go again. So at this point, I'm starting to think that Stetcher and Lewis, this whole drama was to a certain extent a work with the business side being a shoot. Lewis and Stetcher knew a big match would make money, 
and a title switch would have taken it to the next level, but Sandow didn't trust Stetcher to do business once he had the belt. That's going to be a recurring theme in wrestling once it became territorial, once it became company versus company, where you would almost see like a level of inbreeding when it came to title changes, where a lot of times, if you look at the Von Erics or you look at the Gagnés, where you practically pass the belt father to son because you can't trust the belt being given to an outsider because they may take the belt and run. And I feel like they were really trying to work the business side of things before they made an actual match. And a lot of people were hesitant to even do it that way. Yeah, you know, and it's even like there's stories from the Sheik talking about him getting offers to break Hogan's leg and go into business and not drop the strap to him to sort of sabotage McMahon's business. So, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that's old now, but that's modern pro wrestling. Oh, my God. Can you imagine how much different history would be if that happened? Dude, if that, I could only... I don't know. The Sheik's Twitter would probably still be the most over thing on my feed. Absolutely. February 26th, Chicago. Yet another Ed Lewis versus Stanislaus Zabisco match. Lewis won the first with a headlock. Zabisco won the second with arm scissors. And in the third, Lewis punched Stanislav in the face. Who fell back as though he were KO'd. Lewis jumped on him, pinned him, and the crowd booed like crazy especially when the referee claimed Lewis palmed him, thus it wasn't illegal. The crowd lost it, and both Lewis and the referee had to be escorted to the back by the police. The city got involved and said Lewis couldn't wrestle in Chicago until Zabisco got a rematch. So they worked it to the point where they worked the city. Like the government got involved, buying into the work and saying, until you give this man a clean rematch, you can't wrestle in Chicago again. Yeah, that's some heat, though, brother, yes. I mean, God dang. But I love that, that he just hit him. Because now what they've done is, they so they said he's got to get the rematch, right? Well, or he can't, work or, he can't work in Chicago. Yeah, they wouldn't let Lewis wrestle in Chicago until Zabisco got a rematch because they were so incensed by this punch to the face that the referee interpreted wrong. The crowd goes apeshit. And they have now worked the crowd and they have worked the city. The perfect dirty move to set up a rematch. And that rematch was on March 25th at Dexter Park Pavilion in Chicago and drew 12,000 fans. So again, masterful booking, masterful presentation, maximizing the draw, maximizing the payoff with a rematch a month later. Really, there was no mistakes being made by the Goldust Trio at this time. So that might be... The greatest work I've ever heard. And and what I mean is, he the whole goal with, with something like that, with a dirty finish, with the heel getting over, is to set up the desire, like, our guy's going to get him next time. He got him so worked up that they literally passed legal action to cre- to ensure that there would be a rematch. Like, like you are in, you will be arrested if you don't make a rematch or whatever. Like, that is fucking, he, Talk about getting them, man. That's brilliant. And they even managed to keep everybody strong. Stanislaus took the first fall, but Lewis came back hard and injured him before pinning him in the second. The injured Zabisco couldn't properly defend himself and was easily beaten in the third. And on the same card, Big Wayne Munn defeated Montana Jack McCarthy 
who if he did not come out wearing a cowboy hat, I will be disappointed and will never enjoy wrestling again. Yes, Montana hack McCarthy if he missed that wide open layup. So one thing I started thinking about at this point, Stanislaus Zabisco was an old-time shooter who was now jobbing nearly every match. A lot of times they kept him with, you know, intact with a foul or an injury, but seven straight losses to Lewis alone has to wear on a man like that, and how could this be affecting him mentally? Because this is a guy who was in the same conversation as Gotch and Hackenschmidt for the toughest son of a bitch on two legs, and now he's putting over a tough guy like Lewis, but he's losing every big match and had been for a while. And I just can't imagine that was good for him psychologically. You know, he's in the mirror like, You used to be Stanislaus! Now you are Stanislaus! Boo! Yes, boo myself. March 27th, I found an article in Montana Helena Independent. How to act in a prize fight by Duke Muldoon. William Muldoon, they called him the Duke. Muldoon was quoted as saying, Hey, you birds in the nickel seats, no more rough stuff. Or, in words to that effect, the good duke announced to the citizenry of Cauliflowerdom that in the future no unkind or uncomplimentary remarks shall be tossed in the general direction of the perspiring athletes. The paper made fun of him, claiming, Wherefore prepare for the death of such picturesque phrases as Kill the bum! Throw them sponge eaters out and bring on the train seals! Say, if that bimbo's a fighter, I'm Pavlov. Take a couple of stitches in his beak with a left hook, Moxie. Yes, these good old Edisonian passages, cherished for years in the musly pages of ring literature, are to pass, and in their stead, one imagines will come such rugged crudities as, Oh, do be careful, Harold. You may spoil your manicure. Great grief, he actually struck him. Good goody, the little fellow in the pink negligee is building up an adequate lead. Usher, will you lead me to the restroom? I'm quite overcome. Again, William Muldoon was fully into his Simpsons principal Skinner phase and was getting appropriately dragged for it. <laughs> yeah, that is fucking hilarious because they literally like just came up with so many extra. Here's like, in case you needed something to say to piss this guy off. Yeah, it's, it's just hilarious that he has become the principal skinner of wrestling. He's like, no foul yet language out of you, young man. And just everybody's just dunking on him left and right. The athletes hate him. The press hates him. The fan thinks he's a dork. So it was a hard time to be William Muldoon, but it was also a hard time to work with William Muldoon, so I feel it was justified. Well, it was a good time to be William Muldoon in terms of nicknames when it came to running boxing commissions. He's the Duke, the Czar, the friggin' Grand Puba. March 3rd, Ed Lewis defeats Taro Miyake in Kansas City. Quote, Catch as catch can is more popular than jiu-jitsu, claimed the Kansas City Times the following day. Quote, the jiu-jitsu style of wrestling probably never will win favor with the American wrestling public. And I think that's still true today, don't you? I mean, who practices jiu-jitsu? Jiu-jitsu, who's even heard of it? It clearly has fallen off the uh, the face of the earth compared to the popularity of Catch's Catch Can Wrestling. If Jake Shannon is listening, he's probably kind of mad at what I just said. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I mean, but it's I don't pay attention to that fake shit. I don't even know. <laughs> pajama karate, I mean... I, we all saw the first UFC. They had, like, 
some nerd substitute scientist out there and his big brother's karate gi. I mean, I, I didn't watch what happened, but obviously that jujitsu shit is fake. They recounted Ed Lewis's win over Miyaki. The match was described as a nonstop exchange of holds and throws, including Miyaki throwing Lewis around the ring in a clinch, but eventually the headlock gave Lewis the victory. Tootsmont and Pat McGill went to a one-hour draw, and Wayne Munn beat Jack Paulson in straight falls with headlocks, 5 minutes 10 seconds for the first, 4 minutes 10 seconds for the second. According to the article, quote, After winning the first fall, Munn allowed Paulson to get any hold he preferred, and the crowd cheered when Paulson failed to even move the former Nebraska tackle from a standing position. Paulson went to promoter Kaufman during the intermission and asked Matchmaker why he picked Munn for him. Look here, man, snapped Paulson to the promoter. I came here to wrestle a human, not an elephant. What is this? What are we, this is the dude abides? I mean, what are, yeah, it's just so funny. Listen, man. Like, I love the buildup of Munn, because once again, yeah. you have a good wrestler carrying a big incompetent. And they were doing the old-time circus thing of, like, have the big man just kind of stand there and the little guy's trying to move him. It's great heat. It's great excitement for the crowd. It gets a lot of energy. Does it mean a goddamn thing as far as legitimate competition? Absolutely not. But it probably ate up one out of four minutes for the fall because that's about all they could get out of him at this point. And, you know, it's an example of putting a guy in a position of the few things he can actually do well. Because one thing a 6'6 Nebraska football player can do is not get moved. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if that was a shoot, that probably would stand. Yeah, That's yeah. a big man with a good base, strong legs. Good luck just shoving him over. Thoughts and prayers to everyone involved. And speaking of thoughts and prayers, ours go out to Ed Lewis on March 27th as he married his second wife, Bessie McNear of Kansas City. What a romantic moment. I'm sure the flowers were beautiful. Strangler and Bessie. That was, that was on the B-side. April 1st. Jim Londos rode a wave of wins and popularity into a title shot against Lewis and St. Louis. Lewis, saying Lewis a lot here. Lewis took the first fall, Londos the second. Then Lewis took the third after bashing Londos with a knee that left him KO'd for 15 minutes. Mm. I'm uh, going to call that a little bit of a, a bit of ballyhoo there because... If you're knocked out from a knee for for 15 straight minutes, you are dead. Like, that's not, that's a brain swell. You're in a coma. You're going to have to relearn how to feed yourself. You are not going to be doing well. But it was a great way to keep Londo strong and keep him looking like a not loser as a loser, if you will. Because, hey, you know what? He took an illegal or accidental knee to the face. He was KO'd. He didn't technically get pinned or submitted. Yeah, man. Strangler, he is just great. I love the way that he's got every kind of proto-archetype of heel shit. From, you know, finding a different way to cheat and get over, to just work in the politics side. I mean, that's a thing of beauty. April 3rd, in the Kansas City Convention Hall, Tootsmont won the second and third fall to beat John Pesek in the main event. Pesek, who took the first fall according to the Mitchell Evening Republican, didn't seem to be terribly active during this period. I'm not sure if it was a trouble getting bookings now that some people saw him as a flopper and others saw him as an attempted murderer, but putting over Toots Mont probably wasn't a thing he loved doing. 
but in order to keep business going in the business, you have to make concessions and put over a guy like Mont, even though I'm sure Pesic was at any given point going, I could tear this guy's arm off. And some guys just can't win. It's like, you beat the shit out of your opponent. Oh no, he's so dangerous. Oh no, Chango put somebody through a bar window. But then you work and you got put guys over and you're like, oh, he's a jabroni, he's a flopper. It's like, man, that guy is just, he's got the deck is stacked against that brother. And the press was not kind. The Kansas City Times definitely was not. They stated, quote, Now perhaps John Pesek, the kittenish tiger from Robina, Nebraska, will be left to the solitude of his farm. And perhaps not. John should have been through after his pitiful performance with Edward Lewis last winter. That was the saddest drop from the summits of glory ever a wrestler took in this city. It should have been his last appearance here. They got the timeline wrong since that match was the previous May, but the sentiment stood for the region that saw him as a flopper to the real stars. So, what a shitty thing to say. And it's doubly funny that they're saying all this awful shit to a dude who could have come down and killed them all with his bare hands. Yeah, man. These guys... <laughs> that just shows you how the business is fucked up sometimes. Because, yeah, that sucks. He's just... He's getting it on all ends, and he's just like... Yeah, because he was getting his draw blown in Chicago because he he didn't look strong putting over Lewis. And then he puts over Mont. And then out east, he's seen as a psychopath who you could not put in the ring without risking somebody's life. So it really was closing a lot of doors in his face. And it sucks because that was the cause. He was basically like like the, I would say like the hockey equivalent of like the goon or the enforcer, right? But then like he kind of got buried for it. Exactly, and ruined his public perception in a lot of markets. I'm surprised Sandow didn't take better care of him behind Or maybe he did, and it's just we haven't got there yet in the story. Yeah, that's something we will discuss in detail a bit later, because it is a fascinating subject to discuss. Oh, I can't wait, man. That's called a teaser, nerds! Chungo digresses. Wayne Munn was on the same card and was described as showing great improvement in the ring, having beat Joseph Augustowitz, twice in less than 20 minutes in a two out of three falls match, he was using his football tackle to knock his opponent around the ring, then finished him with a headlock in both falls. So now we're starting to see him do a little showmanship. He's starting to work the football tackle, almost a gimmick, one of the first like gimmicked non-wrestling wrestling moves to pop the crowd and get over. Nah, dude, that's a real martial art. Haven't you ever seen Flash Gordon? How many of uh, Emperor Ming's, like, jabronis did he take out with football? He took out, like, like half an army with, you know, and that was a quarterback. The Philadelphia Athletic Commission greenlit its first title match, pitting Ed Lewis against Renato Gardini on May 21st, which ended in a two-hour draw. They split falls, and the third saw Gardini handing Lewis his ass until time ran out. Brilliant booking on behalf of promoter Aurelio Fabiani, who got his fellow Italian over as a huge star with the local Italian crowds. At one point, Lewis slipped through the ropes and argued about continuing the match. The crowd shouted every imaginable insult and threw trash in the ring. And one knife. Yeah, somebody threw a fucking knife into the ring over this uh, near riot. Even glass was thrown and shattered by the ring, delaying the match until it was swept up. 
Can you imagine doing a worked delay spot and there's trash coming and then suddenly like a fucking knife just like I like to think it like stuck in the canvas by his feet. I'm sure it was like a weird like clank clank and slid out like was was that a knife? Did somebody just throw a knife at us? But I wish it was more Hollywood like just like stuck in there as a warning. <laughs> yeah. Never underestimate the hostility of a Italian fight crowd. I just want to know, did then you hear like, hey, can I have my knife back? Yeah, I, I was like, you're like, you're like they, were, they were saying profanity. No, they were getting Italian profanity. He's like, this movie, like, they were, oh, I'm sure that was glorious. At the end of the match, Lewis was so beaten up that it took two men to carry him out of the ring. According to the Cincinnati Commercial Tribune, Gardini, quote, had Lewis in such pain at times that the champion dragged himself out of bounds for protection. When Gardini finally pinned him down with a toehold, it was five minutes before Lewis could get to his feet. So once again, Lewis doing what's right for business. He took the man to a draw, each got a fall, he even went the extra mile by making Gardini wear him down to nothing before time ran out. He retains the title, he gets the heat, he gets the booze, the local Italian babyface looks like a megastar for almost winning the title. And you know what? That formula was pretty much like standard fare. You know, you could have been describing the Von Erichs versus Ric Flair. You could have been describing any top local babyface that almost got it and will definitely have to buy the tickets for the rematch because our guy had them and next time that won't be the case because they got to step. That's the way this is done, man, and that is Brilliant booking. Exactly. And this is where you start seeing this all come together. When people talk about how the Gold Dust Trio created modern pro wrestling, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, man. I mean, the proto is like you're seeing and we're discussing the organic creations of things that are considered like standard trope and just kind of the way things are done now. This is where these became so. And it's fucking cool. April 11th, John Pesek beats Charlie Dish, who was advertised as an Olympic champion by the Lincoln Evening State Journal and Daily News. I couldn't find a name that matched up to any Olympic medalist, so I wonder if he was really Charlie Ackerley, who won gold as a featherweight in the 1920 Antwerp Games, or if they were just advertising him as a Olympic medalist because who the fuck was going was gonna to fact check that uh, at a wrestling show? I just, if I, you know, my only concern is if it is a work, why the hell would you choose to call yourself Dish? <laughs> Maybe he was quite a dish if you catch my drift. Well, apparently he wasn't, because Chongo's never heard of him. He got served cold because Pesic won in 17 minutes, 5 seconds, with head scissors and a wrist lock. On the same card, Wayne Munn beat Dick Daviscourt with a headlock in 7 minutes, 52 seconds. Again, we have a a good wrestler carrying a bad wrestler for seven minutes. Because I, I feel like, again, you'll start seeing his match time go up, but not a lot. Because he really did have a hard time adapting to the world of pro wrestling. Shout out to Dickie Davenport and the the original undercard, you know, uh, I don't, jobber's the wrong term. Carpenters, let's call them carpenters. Shepherds, right? I've heard that term before. The guy who gets in there with the big, green, stiff idiot. And kind of keeps the lamb in the in the line. April 30th, Ed Lewis versus Mike Romano at the Chicago Coliseum in front of 10,000 fans. 
Mike Romano was a mid-carder who put over Lewis four times in 1924 alone. This one saw Romano work Lewis over for half an hour, then getting caught in Lewis's toehold at 41 minutes and 10 seconds. Romano was limping, but Lewis was carried backstage after getting his head cranked by so many headlocks. The second saw the worn down and injured Lewis get beat in 12 minutes, 50 seconds via headlock and pin. But in the third, Lewis went for a rope break. This was considered very unsportsmanlike in title matches at this time. Lewis, barely hanging on from Romano's assault, was grabbing at the ropes. Romano went for the kill and grabbed Lewis from behind, trying to pull him back. Lewis let go, and the two men fell backwards with Lewis on top for the pin, and the crowd lost their fucking minds and rioted. They started breaking chairs until the police came and dispersed them. And that was for a roll-up. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a completely modern pro wrestling move. Totally. That was a, I could totally see it. You do the, you got him around the waist and you roll back. I forget the name of it, but then you land in the thing. Like, yeah, that is a... Dude, these guys are just literally inventing this shit. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm surprised we haven't found one where, like, Toots Mont's music hits. And, <laughs> and he goes to the ropes and gets rolled up with a schoolboy. You know, they're 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 like half a step behind that already in 1924. So what's the over-under on the first time somebody's gonna hit someone with a chair? <laughs> the Merced Sun Star on May 1st had an article, quote, Pop bottles fly when Lewis wins, and claimed that Romano's manager started a fist fight with a referee after claiming Romano wasn't actually pinned. According to the San Bernardino Sun, quote, he was finally escorted from the ring by a cordon of police and taken to his hotel in a patrol wagon. So, true or not, that's how you that's how you paint somebody as a villain. Ed Lewis was an amazing heel champ when he was at his best. How many times over the last number of episodes have matches had a goofball finish, made a babyface look strong, kept the title intact? And made the crowd so angry they were going to commit felonies. Yeah, I mean, this is literally, we are we are learning the creation of all of dirty finishes. He's like, well, we did it before because it's the same formula. He's doing it over and over again, and they're just getting better and more modern and more nuanced with the style of the finishes. And we are now starting to see like straight up modern pro wrestling finishes. May 7th in Chicago, Stanislaw Zabisco got a win over Toots Mont. I assume this was to keep the big pole happy after so many high-profile losses. On the same card, John Pesek threw Chicago's J Joe Dostal, according to the Nebraska State Journal, quote, so heavily after 59 minutes and 30 seconds with a body hold that Dostal was unable to continue and conceded the second fall to Pesek. Um, that kind of makes me half wonder if it was a shoot because that was just such a weird finish otherwise to just have it be like worn down so much that they verbally tap out most likely was a, a worked finish. Who knows? Maybe it was like a, a, a worked outcome. I don't know. It just something smells a little different to me on, on a finish like that than a Sandow plant hippodrome. Do you think it was like a early version of throwing up the old X's maybe? Possibly. I mean, it's like he just verbally told the referee. Like, I fucked my shit up. You yeah. gotta stop it. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah, that might, you know, maybe that's what it was, man. That that, that seems as likely as anything else because it doesn't smell like a sand out of me either. 
In early May, Sandell Lewis and his new wife set up a training camp in Boston to prepare for his May 8th match against Stanley Stasiak. Lewis got into a fist fight with training partner George Farmer Bailey during a workout on May 3rd. To no surprise, Bailey was, of course, fired. Ha! Thank you. Imagine, like, being such a hothead that while doing a essentially presentation training camp, you get so mad about something that you take a swing at the champ. She'll never work in this town again. Meanwhile, Stanley Stasiak was giving public workouts that were drawing up to 2,000 people. People were so hot for this. Thousands of people were watching them just work out in, in public. It's insane. So he was like an early Lex Luger. Yeah, it's kind of along those lines. On May 5th, Lewis traveled up to Rochester to beat Toots Mont in front of 3,000 fans, as one does during a very intense and clearly very real training camp. Yes, yes. No hippodromes to be detected anywhere. It's, it's clearly on the square, as they say. Ed Lewis and Stanley Stasiak drew big time in Boston with a city record of 9,000 fans on May 8th. Stasiak won the first fall in 49 minutes and won with a body scissor and wrist lock. Ed Lewis went full heel in the second, strangling and punching his opponent. Woo! The crowd wasn't exactly supportive. Stasiak returned the favor with a headbutt and then all hell broke loose in the ring with managers, referees, venue employees, and security needed to separate the two men. Stasiak was DQ'd and the crowd went crazy with boos and insults. I'm shocked there wasn't a riot. Shocked and disappointed. Like, that sounded like a SmackDown finish from, like, the Attitude Era. Yeah, just, just everybody running in, you know. The, just chaos, yeah, just, brother. Just chaos in the ring. It's, it, was like the, it, was, it was like a bad setup for a pay-per-view that wasn't about to happen. The Stockton Independent claimed that Stasiak stepped on Lewis's neck. The seconds, you know, the quartermen of both men, and several policemen rushed into the ring and dragged Stasiak away. If you're going to send people home with uh, some, some adrenaline uh, pumping through their veins, that is one way to do it. Yeah, it's like, it was so gnarly that they didn't riot. They were like, that was scary or some shit. That's cool. You see, like, the peanut boys running in, swinging their, their little, like, strap carts around, trying to, trying to break up the violence. Yeah, it was just, just madness in the ring. And again, this isn't the sort of thing you saw beforehand, even when it was work. The managers running in, these guys running in. Oh shit, here comes the Legion of Doom. You know, where it's just yeah, yeah. it's just absolute madness as we go as we roll credits. Yeah, well you answered your question from earlier, how long until you know you were expected homie's music to hit and him hit the ring. Well, they didn't have the music yet, because I don't think you know, music was invented back then, but you know, the spirit of it was the same. Everyone's favorite person, William Muldoon, again Ew. making headlines for trying to suspend several champion boxers for not defending their titles as often as he wanted them to. Sports writer Henry L. Farrell was published nationwide on May 27th and 28th, covering Muldoon's campaign against, quote, title nursers. He went so far as wanting to strip them of their titles and set up new ones. The issue was that while New York City was the capital of the boxing business, many champions were not necessarily bound to New York City for their careers, so fighters like 
Mickey Walker didn't have to give a shit until they applied for a New York license on a comeback, which would have negated all of Muldoon's complaints. The guy's so crotchety, he's trying to like regulate boxing from New York City, trying to force boxers to fight more when they have the championship. Because that's something we really started seeing often with Dempsey. And after that, where a champion would say, you know what, I am a draw. And if I fight too often, I no longer become a draw. So you would see boxers who had the titles taking longer periods between fights. So they meant more, would draw more money. So he basically is trying to set up like an Amish fight organization. Like you're not allowed <laughs> to clap. You're not allowed to like, you know, enjoy anything or like, you know, you can't, you know, Muldoon, man. What happened to you, bro? You used to be over. <laughs> used to be cool, man. You yeah. used to be cool. You used to be cool. On May 28th, Joe Stetcher beat Renato Gardini in two out of three falls in St. Louis. First fall was 59 minutes, 43 seconds, who then caught Stetcher in the second with a leg scissor and half Nelson at 28 minutes, 10 seconds. Stetcher came back and won the third fall with a body scissors in nine minutes, 27 seconds. And the semi-main was Jim Londos and Vladek Zabisco wrestling to a one-hour draw. So we are starting to see the guys who we haven't really heard about lately, the Vladek Zabiscos, the Jim Londoses, starting to get good marquee matches because Stetcher was creating a viable alternative to the Sandow organization. I'm not really putting it quite yet as WCW versus WWF, but when you do finally have that viable alternative to draw big numbers, you start seeing more guys getting spots. You see the Vladek Zabisco making a meaningful comeback. You see Jim Londos getting more meaningful matches because they can actually win the big ones now. So competition does breed success for everyone when it's healthy. So that was like the first TNA of like using all the stars that the that the big established guys have already created and using them to sort of build yourself up as their equal. Also on May 28th, Ed Lewis beat Stanislaw Zabisco in Chicago. Yawn. The media was simply thrilled at this match, yet another between the two. Media, much like the Atchison Daily Globe, focused on Zabisco being nearly 50. Lewis beat him decisively, but in the second fall, Stanislav dropped Lewis with a headbutt. An attempt to turn Lewis babyface, maybe? A bad idea, or just a blown spot? Either way, Chicago was getting tired of this matchup, and the draw was down to 5,600. The press mostly lamented the ruined career of Stanislaw Zabisco. So, yeah, it's like they've, they're starting to blow this, uh, this, this series because, you know, you've beat a guy down seven times in a row, and you, you can't even get heat off of a headbutt at that point. You know, nobody gives a shit. Like, like Stanislaus could have probably pulled out a gun and shot Lewis, and they would still be sympathetic with Stanislaus. Like, he was just fed up. What was he supposed to do? Not shoot him? Yeah, I mean, it's at that point where it's like, why do the match if you're not going to do the title change? And obviously, they're not trying to do the title change, so why do the match? And speaking of Zabisco, to build up Stanley Stasiak, they had him beat the ever-diminished Zabisco on June 12th in Boston. He is officially in stepping stone uh, mode. He is now just the guy to put everybody over. He's, and you know, and there's nothing really wrong with that in some circumstances. You know, there is the pin me, pay me, uh, you know, mentality of independent wrestlers. 
But this is still when it was the presentation was different. It meant different things on a national level. So yeah, just getting killed again and again and again and again and again definitely had to start wearing on the man. This is how you get like a good like. This would be the point when you do like a, a character change or, or run with a different gimmick if you're going to stay in the game. Lewis and Sandow, and most likely Mont, were in a car accident on June 26th when the car skidded into a ditch on a wet road. They had been in training camp for a big match against Mont in Rochester, so I half assume he was in the car and probably had to run and hide to maintain kayfabe. It's speculation on my part. I just love the idea of them getting into a crack-up and Mont having to go hide in the woods until they could uh, get everything put together to uh, to avoid them being seen together in public like that. Yeah, I mean, that's like, there were those urban legends that Ric Flair crawled away from the plane crash to not break kayfabe or whatever. But maybe that's the first example of that kind of thing, too. That's cool that the level of kayfabe they were willing to go through, if that's the case. In Steve Yohei's biography of Ed Lewis, I was first introduced to the name Lou Darrow. Darrow was a sideshow strongman and wrestler who became a regional promoter in Boston under Jack Curley. He got into a regional fight for talent and fans with George Tui, lost and headed west to carve out a new territory for himself in California. He had been running in Long Beach with Jim Londos as his top star but by 1924 was concentrating on the Los Angeles area, running out of the massive Philharmonic Auditorium. It was an amazing building if you look up photos. It was once the largest concrete building in America and hosted the first Academy Awards. So this is a big, prestigious place to be running wrestling out of. And Sandow clearly saw an opportunity to make some California money with Darrow. On July 9th, Stanislaw Zabisco beat Yusuf Hussein, it's good to see Zabisco getting a win, finally. And on July 23rd, Tootsmont won a handicap match beating Zabisco. So, kind of giving him a little crumb where it's a handicap match, so it's not like a, a real loss. Yeah. On June 29th, Lewis beat Zabisco, a tired match, but it was brand new to the L.A. audience, so they ate it the fuck up. In 1924, we were seeing the birth of the Classic Hollywood, with movie star sightings, mansions in the hills, and the glamour being printed across newspapers coast to coast. So, they're taking the kind of same thing that they burned out in Chicago, and have transplanted it to Los Angeles, and now everything that's old is new again. They're able to start drawing off of the same program, and now they're able to do it with a layer of glitz and glamour, because it's Hollywood, baby! And I bet, I bet honestly, the match was pretty good at that point, because... Like, that was the advantage back then, is you could take that match on the road in your territory, and then take, once everyone has seen it, then you take that match to another territory where it's fresh, and I'm sure by the time they're at that point, the match is probably pretty dang good. And here's one you're going to love. On August 11th, Ed Lewis had a little legal whoopsie doodle. Lewis, his wife, and brother-in-law were partying in Tijuana, as all good stories begin. And on the way back, they got into a car crash. The other driver, one Mrs. Daisy Haynes, made Lewis get out of the car and look at the damage. She was very upset, and the two got into an argument with, um, unkind things being said. Daisy's son, Charles, took offense and got out of the car to confront Lewis, 
and got knocked the fuck out for his efforts. Leo, her other son, got out and met the same fate, as did a third man who was in the car. Daisy was also roughed up at the scuffle, I assume she was trying to get in the middle of it. Lewis, with a sea of bodies in front of him, got back into his car and drove away from what the Humboldt Times described as a, quote, mystic affray on the Tijuana Highway. Dude, driving Miss Daisy never goes well with anybody. But yeah, that's awesome, because, like, he, I can just see her just bink next, bink, there's just bodies laying out. And he should be glad it was just a punch instead of, like, a fucking uh, arm lock. But you, it, this is why you don't pick fights with strangers, people. This is why you don't start shit in the bar. You don't start shit in the grocery store checkout line in a car accident situation. Because these poor assholes didn't know that they were mouthing off to the world champion. Yes, wrestling was a work. But this is a legitimate dangerous grappler. And they just came out mouthing off and got dropped punch after punch after punch. But as we all know, sometimes that's uh, not, not a good thing to happen for legal purposes, especially when further up the highway, Lewis was pulled over for speeding and refused to get out of the car. He was arrested and charged with battery and disturbing the peace and was released on a $500 bail. But don't worry, he still made it to the Philharmonic Auditorium for his match against Toots Mont where he won the only fall before time ran out after two hours the following day. Lewis apparently looked like shit, physically, and was mostly dominated by Mont, except the lead-up to the fall. The building was sold out at 5,000 people, with another 2,000 turned away. I guess, yeah, you know, a, a drunken rampage, you know, your hands hurt from fighting. I can't imagine anything worse than a 1924 hangover from Mexican tequila in a jail cell in Los Angeles. That seems like the worst place to be hungover. So, uh, yeah, I can imagine him putting in less than a stellar appearance the next day. Yeah, as someone who personally has experience with getting released from holding on bail and having to make your call time and then wrestle after spending the previous night in holding, you know, you're kind of grumpy about it, old chap. The charges were eventually dropped as covered by the August 12th Madeira Tribune because the victims would have had to pay for their own hotels to stay for the trial. They gave up and headed back to Los Angeles. Lewis agreed to pay for the damage to their car like a gentleman would. Yes, here, let me pay for that, you know, bumper that I made on your bumper with your face. August 27th, another meaningless win over Zabisco for Lewis, but the L.A. crowd wasn't burned out, and it drew another 5,000 fans. Wrestling was getting hot in Los Angeles. They at least made it entertaining by having the decisive pin with both men falling to the mat with Lewis on top, the ref calling it a pin, and Zabisco went on a rampage, claiming it was a bullshit decision. So yeah, they're starting to bring the ballyhoo, you know, the, the silly goose activity, into the uh, the L.A. arenas because it had paid off so well in Chicago to keep matches fresh. Yeah, and you know, I wouldn't say that it was like a worthless match if they drew 5,000. I mean, these people still, like you said, it's not burnout in L.A. yet, man. At this time, Lewis was battling another trachoma flare-up, and the press was suggesting he was nearly blind and would soon be retiring. Yet Lewis beat Zabisco again on September 4th and Tootsmont on September 25th, both shows sold out the Philharmonic Auditorium. Dara was the toast of the town after making wrestling a staple of L.A. nightlife. 
It was so hot that Daro booked the Ed Lewis Tootsmont rematch at the Washington Ballpark for October 13th. Another upside of running in Los Angeles was the ability to do outdoor shows all year round. Yeah, totally. And I feel like maybe Daro was like the first wrestler to speak in the third person. <laughs> I, if my name was Lou Daro, it's like, look, Lou Daro doesn't like this deal. And if Lou Daro doesn't like yes. this deal, then Lou Daro's not doing the deal. You want to tell that to Lou Daro down the road when Lou Daro does that deal with someone else? Huh? Do you? Do you want to do that with Lou Daro? It doesn't matter if Lou Daro knows your name, nerd. <laughs> the show at the baseball stadium drew 10,000 fans. Nearly everyone expected a title switch to Mont, and they were treated to an all-out war between the two men. Mont took the first fall in 34 minutes, 9 seconds, with a jackknife arm scissor into a pin. Lewis had to be carried backstage for the 10-minute rest period. If you don't know what a jackknife arm scissor is, you can look it up, or in jiu-jitsu, it's very close to a bicep pressure with your shed. So it is something you can sell as very painful because if you catch it legitimately, it's very painful. Yeah, that's one that's actually somewhat hard to work if you do it hard. That's a that's a I, that's legit. And the second fall got wild with both men throwing punches. Mont almost getting the jackknife scissor, only for Lewis to reverse it and get a toehold at 41 minutes 51 seconds. Mott came back for the third limping from the toehold, you know where this is going, folks, and got caught in another in 4 minutes, 19 seconds. They did everything smart, giving a huge audience a real show in the biggest California event at that time. So you did have the babyface winning the first one, and then the heel catches him the second one with a bunch of punches being thrown. It's getting wild. The crowd's getting into it, but he gets caught. And he gets injured, he comes back injured, he can't defend himself. So they did give everyone their money's worth. The thing is now going to be considered is, would that have been the smart move to put the belt onto Toots Mont? Was Ed Lewis's draw starting to wear out coast to coast? Was it Mont's time to take the next step before he too became a Zabisco-esque stepping stone? Just keep those questions in the back of your mind as we progress with this series. Bro, they're there, brother. Like, open tabs that are beeping. With all of the top contenders used up in L.A. for the time being, they headed back to the Midwest. Lewis had a handful of mostly dicking around to stay busy matches in Chicago and Kansas City. The only interesting one was against Hasselin O. Giles on December 11th in Kansas City which apparently had no rules and no referee, just judges uh, ringside, and was won by Lewis with two straight strangleholds in front of 10,000 fans. According to the Bakersfield, California on 1212, the match was no holds barred, and he won the first fall in 18 minutes and the second in four minutes, which I think is a wild gimmick for 1924. You know, they, they had a legitimate no holds barred match, like, I'm shocked they didn't wrap it in barbed wire, just go completely uh, all in on the topic. But it was one of those states where they didn't have an athletic commission, so they were able to get wild with the gimmicks, and I think that's pretty darn cool. Yeah, it's like they're checking it out, they're experimenting, they're trying new things. They're, they're, that's, that is fascinating, honestly. I like that gimmick. On the same card, Big Wayne Munn beat Toots Mont in straight falls. 
which is a huge step for Wayne Mund. Wow, yeah. So that's another one to keep in the back of your mind. We'll talk more about that later. After the match, according to the Atchison Daily Globe, a Colorado Springs mechanic served papers to Lewis, having filed a lawsuit for $10,180 over a car accident that he claimed left him disabled. Whether it was legit or someone realizing they could make a payday over it, Lewis's eyes were clearly an issue when he was behind the wheel. Yeah, that, uh, that was oddly specific to be false. And yeah, you know, I'll say this. People in Colorado Springs are terrible drivers, but Chongo digresses. Uh, for a second, I was like, maybe this was a work to give Lewis a creative way to get out of it but with his eyesight failing, but it doesn't sound like they're, doing, they're going that far with it, so that sucks. Big Wayne Munn was getting the Hogan-level push by Sandow at this point and was now a main eventer with the press behind him. A 9-11 Nebraska State Journal article, Wayne Munn to get chance at Big Four, stating that Munn was now on the level of Lewis, Mott, Zabisco, and Stetcher, which just shows how hard everyone was working to carry this motherfucker. Yeah, totally, man. So proto-Ultimate Warrior Goldberg. Yeah, before all these matches, on 11.30, the same paper published, Munn wants Mont. How would I like to meet Toots Mont? Fine. So says Wayne Munn, wrestler of gigantic proportions who hails from Nebraska. I'm tired of meeting fellows that I can throw easily. I'll never acquire any experience that way. Put me in there against Mont or Lewis and see what I can do against the First Raiders. So yeah, they're giving him promos. They're giving him squashers. They're pushing him to the moon. They are creating a star. And this is the first time they've created a star out of bullshit in the pro wrestling world. And it's it's a babyface chase sort of archetypal setup that they're creating here. They got hot babyface chasing the veteran heel, and uh, you know everybody thinks this is the guy. This is great. They have built this, and there's a lot. You see it in the wrestling business. The transition from one top guy to the next can make or break the next several years of a promotion, and the the way that that's done, that baton passing, like look to Shawn Michaels. When he lost to Stone Cold, it took the business off, you know, versus other times where it's like people don't want to see it. So that is brilliantly set up to build that baby face. And speaking of baby faces, on September 28th in Los Angeles, Joe Stetcher is back from another go at baseball. He would disappear from wrestling periodically to try to make it as a pro baseball player, but he was back to defeat Stanislaw Zabisco. The Mitchell Evening Republic wrote that, quote, Zabisco's age seemed to weigh upon him as the bout progressed. Not exactly kind words from the media. Stetcher, he was back and he stayed busy with wins over Henry Ordman on October 15th, Harry Stoff on November 6th, John Evko on November 18th, November 19th against Taro Miyake, whom, according to the Logan Sport Pharaohs Tribune, Stetcher rendered unconscious. And these are all solid wins, but a far cry from where you'd expect him to be seven years after he was handpicked to succeed Frank Gotch. Yeah, so Stetcher was like the first psycho sit who had to take softball season off every year, right? <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, he was trying to make a go of it. He loved baseball, but he could never really, he, and he, he played pro, but he could just never really take that next step and would always come back to wrestling. According to the Emporia Gazette, Stetcher was often referred to as, quote, a prince without a title and a king without a crown, and claimed, 
Many fans hope he will regain the title he lost three years ago to Ed Strangler Lewis. The December 13th Lincoln Star encapsulated Stetcher's situation with the article, quote, Rossler's trust again gets busy. Hippodromer is playing old tricks of dragging off the easy money. Joe Stetcher, now outside the clip, wants Lewis but can't get him. Those exotic wrestlers are doing their annual winter Hippodrome, and how, but interesting beyond even the trick matches, the phony antics, and the burlesque endings of the trust affairs is the loud plaintive wailing of Joe Stetcher. Undoubtedly, Joe realizes the story about the biter getting bit. By this, they meant that Joe is now in the position of the outsider when once upon a time he reaped the benefits of the trust business model, but got on the wrong side of the Sandow curly split. So yeah, he was just really getting dragged for, ha ha, how does it feel now, asshole, while at the same time dragging the Sandow group as being a bunch of hippodromers, fakes, phonies, and scam artists. Hey, remember when people thought it was real? Yeah, back when they couldn't draw a wooden nickel. And you know what? Can I just say right now that I think that I want to start a new fashion called the Hippodrome. I like it. And John Pesek was also busy during the wrestling season, but it's honestly just a list of matches he won with very little spice on the stories. Because honestly, if I made every episode a full list of every match people did, every match would, every episode would be five hours long and nobody would enjoy it. Yeah, we're, we're picking out the choice nugs for the people, man. But, you know, frankly, it, it, it speaks to who had the exciting press clippings back in the day. It was correlated to who was the draw, so it makes sense. In November, California voters approved of the creation of a boxing and wrestling commission to oversee the sports. I'd like to thank the Bakersfield Morning Echo on November 9th for the headline, No Blind Pigs at Boxing Bout. California Governor Friend, that's right, friend, Richardson, was quoted as saying, if the people of California authorize the state to take control of boxing, I want to assure the public that the boxing bouts will not be run as a nexus to blind pigs or bootleg joints. A blind pig, I had to look this up because it sounds like such a great insult, was a place that served booze and a reference to a cop turning a blind eye and taking a bribe. Keep in mind that prohibition was still a thing. So, we had a guy more or less coming in trying to say, all that crap we hear happening out east and in Chicago, we'll have none of it in the golden state of California. Oh, yeah, they, they're definitely on the up and up in California. But, uh, yeah, what, a, blind, a blind pig, oh, I thought that was a slightly, slightly different reference. Why wasn't California's athletic commission a big problem for wrestling? Well, mostly because they didn't have someone like William Muldoon getting in the way. Muldoon essentially killed wrestling in New York and was busy making boxers miserable. Meanwhile, Lewis and Sandow claimed that they were prepping for a European tour that never happened. According to the November 29th Stockton Independent, Billy Sandow claimed they would set sail about January 15th. When I was reading this, I assumed it was either another trachoma flare-up or simply taking time away to rebuild interest in his brand and his appearances and maybe even just to get physically in shape. At this point, he'd been the champ for nearly two years. He'd been wrestling nonstop, which is an eternity in this era. He'd eaten up every contender. He was 34, out of shape, nearly blind, and his matches were getting worse with every appearance. But he was now committing the greatest sin in wrestling. 
holding down the belt when your draw is blown. Yeah, yeah, you know, that so often we see guys don't, don't, they're, they're, you know, pride, pride come before the fall. And you see so many times where the guy who was the right guy to be a top guy for a long time is the last to understand that he's not anymore. Yeah, so he was really starting to fall off as a draw, as a performer, even as a person. He knew it. Sandow knew it. The public knew it. But who would be next in line to keep things interesting? Zabisco was out of the question for several reasons. Mont would need months of rebuilding to be seen as an equal to Lewis, let alone a top guy. Stetcher couldn't be trusted because he was an outsider. And Pesek's reputation made him a poor choice as well. So who would they turn to reinvigorate the title and the national box office? Sandow had a plan, and it would change wrestling for decades to come. And that is the cliffhanger on which we will be ending this rather long episode. Hopefully that extra half an hour kept you uh, entertained and enthralled and into this story. But this is where we're going to drop things off at the end of the year 1924. We have a champion who conquered L.A. We have a champion who is now physically falling apart and can't draw tickets. We have an old champion who is now just lying down and jobbing to everybody in front of him. We have a policeman who is now alternately seen as too dangerous and too much of a flopper to be a draw coast to coast. There are a lot of booking problems, so they went with a very unique concept, a novel idea. They went with a great experiment, and that's going to be the subject of our next episode. Well, I'm fucking pumped, man. Can we, like, put the Hippodrome Express into, like, forward time for a change so we can hurry up and get to the next episode? Oh, good God. My voice is barely holding up after this one. We're going to have to wait a few days to do the next one. But we're going to cover the year 1925 on our next one. Hopefully you enjoyed the stories of 1924. A little bit longer than normal, but I feel like there was a lot to get through this time around. Um, make sure, if you're not already, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check out our Instagram. Every time I do the research, I like to find the old headlines, the photos, cartoons, and put them on social media because it's just a wild look into the past of wrestling. So, and if you are on a platform like iTunes where you can leave a review, we, it, it would mean the world to us that you would do so. If you feel this episode was worth a buck or two, by all means, the Venmo link is in the description. But otherwise, how are you enjoying the story so far? I mean, we've been doing this one since March, and we still have some to go. So I feel like this is a big story, big stars, big tales, and I'm loving it. Dude, 1924 was swinging, man. And the setup for what is happening, everything that's come together, it's the perfect storm that's going to establish modern pro wrestling. It's going to establish modern pro wrestling, and it's also going to wreck their current pro wrestling, but that's a story for next time when we talk about 1925. We're done. I'm done. You got things to do. Do your homework. Do your chores. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Yes, cut, print, Flintstone chewable. (laughs) 